I will give you a quick note. One thing that I ask all of our readers to do that's extra special at our series is I ask them to share a brief anecdote about queens before they read. And so we're going to see what they have to say about our fine borough. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event in Long Island City, Queens at LIC Bar. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our July 10th, 2018 event, which featured Chelsea Hodson, Allie Robottom, and Amanda Stern. In our next episode, you can listen to the panel discussion from the same event. So let's jump into LIC Bar, where I'm introducing our first reader, Chelsea Hodson. Chelsea Hodson is the author of the essay collection, Tonight I'm Someone Else, available in this beautiful purple cover from Astoria Bookshop, and the chapbook, Pity the Animal. She's a graduate of the MFA program at Bennington College and has been awarded fellowships from McDowell Colony and Penn Center USA Emerging Voices. Her writings appeared in Freeze, Black Warrior Review, The Lifted Brow, Fancy in Hobart, and elsewhere. She teaches at Catapult in New York and at Morstua Vita Mea in Rome. And did you co-found that program? She co-founded a program in Rome. So get to know her. She's amazing. Um, Amy Hempel, Sarah Manguza, and Miranda July are all fans of Tonight I'm Someone Else. The Washington Post says that the book's lucid insights and Hudson's transfixing style mark a memorable first collection. And the Chicago Review of Books says no one writes like Chelsea Hodson. These essays are a welcome battering ram to the chest. And I got to tell you, I, I agree in a good way. Like battering ram could knock your breath out. Yes. Wake you up. Yes. I really enjoyed this book. Every line I was like, let me underline this. Let me underline. Let's give it up for Chelsea. Hi, everyone. Really happy to be here. Thanks for coming out. Um, so yeah, this is my book tonight. I'm someone else. Um, it's my first book and, um, but I had a chat book that was one of the essays come out. It was called pity the animal. And I think it's the only time that the word Queens appears in the book. So I'll just read, I'll just read the, the sentence I'm reading from another essay, but, um, the, this essay pity the animal starts. I was sitting on the rooftop of my apartment building in May waiting for July's fireworks. I was cleaning high-rise condos in Manhattan, teaching fourth grade in Queens, eating wheat bread and American cheese sandwiches that the government delivered to the school. I was writing everything down as if I knew what I was seeing. I was pretending to be a neutral observer, but I kept trying to override my heartbreak with poignancy. It was almost working. So that's when Queens comes into play there, and it was a really big part of my life working in um, Jackson Heights, so I would start in my apartment in Bed-Stuy most days, and then go up to the Upper East Side, clean apartments, go to Jackson Heights, teach a fourth grade after school program, and then tutor students from there after that and eat dinner with them. So it was like, it was a lot. <laughs> and um, So I don't go into that job in particular, but um, I do have a relationship to Queens that's quite old. So I'm going to read the first couple of pages of an essay called I'm Only a Thousand Miles Away. It's about a couple of things, but mainly about bringing people closer as, um, as a result of just looking at them to so kind of what a gaze, um, the power that a gaze holds, rather. When my friend Alexis and I were in the sixth grade, my mother took us to a water park in Phoenix called Sunsplash. 
My mother sat in the shade, reading, while Alexis and I wandered around, going down the water slides, swimming against the current in the wave pool, and finally, floating on inner tubes on the lazy river, a circle of water with a gentle current that looped us around the park. Two boys our age paddled their way up to us. The more attractive one, TJ, tanned with defined abs, began talking to Alexis and her buoyant tits, which were just as mysterious to me as they were to him. Her disproportionately large chest made her bold, and I hoped some of her boldness might make its way to me and my flat-chested boy body. No luck yet. For now, I was talking to the less attractive friend, Freddie, a pale, soft boy with a gentle demeanor. He sat up on his inner tube and showed me his love handles. I asked him to repeat the term, which I'd never heard, and he said, you know, handles for love. <laughs> when it was time to go, we borrowed a pen from the corndog stand and we all carved our phone numbers into napkins. I hadn't liked Freddie that much in person, but on the phone, I was charmed by his jokes. The calls also gave us the chance to talk about our good-looking friends, who both impressed and terrified us. Last week, TJ's father drove TJ 45 minutes and dropped him off at Alexis's house, and they had made out in her room. The logistics of this seemed impossible to Freddie and me, and yet we knew it was the truth. Our friends were the kind of people who made things happen, and we were the kind who waited for other people's magic to touch us. Freddie and I pieced together both sides of their stories until we'd imagined the event so thoroughly that it became ours too. I liked the way the phone connected my voice to someone else's without a real commitment. It was casual, like instant messaging. I'd let silence fill the line if I had nothing to say or if I wanted to think before continuing. My calls could last hours until my phone ran out of battery and beeped and I had to quickly say goodbye before placing the phone back in its holster on the wall next to my bed. My phone was made of translucent lime green plastic and it brightened with a red LED light each time it rang. I shared a phone line with our computer's dial-up modem, so I could be either on the phone or on the internet, but I had to choose. After a few months, Freddie and I ran out of things to talk about, since we knew our parents would never drive 45 minutes to drop us off at the other's house. We'd never kiss, and our friends would likely never kiss again. Eventually, the light stayed unlit. Fan mail had been my primary mode of communication with boys up until that point, passing notes in class. In fifth grade, I fell deeply in love with Taylor Hansen, the androgynous middle brother in Hansen, who played the keyboard, sang like a girl, and frankly, looked a lot like me. When my bitter music teacher, Mr. Bell, real name, mocked them for being superficial pop stars, I argued, actually, they write all their own songs. I remember sitting at my desk in my bedroom with a piece of notebook paper and an envelope I'd addressed to an official Hanson fan club that I'd found online. I also had a map of the United States and a ruler. One inch meant a hundred miles, so I counted out ten inches from Phoenix to Tulsa, where Taylor lived, and I began the letter, Dear Taylor, I'm only a thousand miles away from where you are. 
It seemed like a manageable distance, the kind that could be traveled through sheer will. One day we would meet, and he would know what I knew, that I was young, sure, but I was the only one who could really love him. I never saw Hanson in concert. I never got a letter back, and loving Taylor became so deeply uncool that I gave up and found a replacement. By sixth grade, I was in love with one of the Backstreet Boys, Brian, the seemingly asexual, non-threatening Christian who loved playing basketball. Alexis loved AJ, which was no surprise, since he was the clearly designated bad boy of the group. Our friend Casey loved Nick, the obvious heartthrob with blue eyes and a blonde bowl cut. My love for Brian was fierce, and it was perpetuated by Alexis and Casey, since the group was our main topic of conversation. We wrote entire notebooks full of stories in which we were in high school with the Backstreet Boys before they were famous. Chapter by chapter, they fell in love with us. And even if we'd known the term, we would never have dared to call what we wrote fan fiction, because that would imply the stories weren't true. And though we knew we invented everything, it seemed true to us, or it seemed true to me. Alexis and Casey loved admiring the Backstreet Boys, but I secretly thought of myself as the most devoted of us. What I wrote wasn't meant to be entertaining. It was meant to change fate's course. I knew how famous they were, and that they were in their 20s while we were only 13, but it's hard to explain how close they felt. I filled an entire wall with magazine photos of the Backstreet Boys, and I looked at them with such focus and for such long periods of time that it became like a prayer. It was the first time in my life that I remember feeling physical side effects of longing. I preferred to ache than to feel nothing at all. Someday, I would reach out and touch Brian, and he would touch me. But when? My mother took Alexis, Casey, and me to see the Backstreet Boys in concert about a year after our obsession began. I wrote Brian's nickname, B-Rock, on my forehead in metallic blue eyeliner, and Alexis wrote AJ's nickname, Bone, on hers. Inside the stadium, it was mostly girls like us and our mothers filling the stadium with our electricity. Casey said, we're about to breathe the same air as them, and we screamed. We were seated at least 200 feet away from the stage, but we yelled their names as if they could hear us. They sang all our favorite songs, but I spent the entire show distracted, waiting for Brian to look at me. And then, toward the end of the show, he waved in my direction, and I felt it. He looked at me, I screamed in Casey's ear. Did you see that? A few hours later, around midnight, I was in bed listening to the radio, trying to fall asleep. I loved pop music, of course, but the radio station I had playing that night was the alternative rock station that played at least one Nirvana song every hour. The DJ announced, ladies and gentlemen, we have Nick Carter in the studio this evening. Yes, that's Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. I immediately sat up in my bed to listen. He was there promoting his friend's rock band. I didn't wait to hear the details. I picked up my phone and dialed the radio station's number. Everyone in my house was asleep, so I kept the volume on my stereo low and I kept my ear next to the speaker as the phone rang. Someone at the radio station picked up and asked if I would please hold. 
I said yes and waited. Nick played his friend's band song, which I don't remember, and then they, let it, they started letting callers talk to Nick. About five calls in, I heard the DJ and my phone say the same thing. Hello, you're on the air with Nick Carter. My adrenaline was pumping hard. I didn't know how to say what I actually wanted to say, which was, will you tell Brian that I love him? <laughs> I was old enough to know that was impolite, so I settled on a breathless, I just want to say that I love you and Brian. I was at your concert tonight, and it was amazing. The DJ and Nick laughed and thanked me and hung up. I lay in my dark room with the radio still playing, but I wasn't listening. Having just seen the Backstreet Boys play to a sea of girls and mentally multiplying that by the number of cities I knew they'd toured in, Brian had started to feel farther away than usual. But now I'd brought him closer again. Nick would tell Brian that I loved him, and then he'd know. Thank you. Our next reader is Allie Robottom. All right. Allie Robottom has a PhD in creative writing and literature from the University of Houston, which I really want to say Houston every time I see it. I've been in New York too long. Where she was an imprint memorial Barthelme Fellow in nonfiction and was awarded the Marion Barthelme Prize. She also holds an MFA from CalArts and a BA from NYU. Her work has received scholarships, essay prizes, and honorable mentions from Tin House, the Best American Essay Series, the Florida Review, the Bellingham Review, the Black Warrior Review, the Southampton Review, all of the reviews, and Hunger Mountain. Her first book, Jello Girls, is forthcoming. That means it has not, you guys, it hasn't even been published yet. What's the date? Is in the 24th. What's today, guys? The 10th. That's two weeks away, but you can buy it here tonight, and Allie will sign it for you. Yes, it's true. Um, anyway, it's forthcoming in two weeks from Little Brown and Company. Now, this, this book is incredible. It's this incredible story, both of Allie's family, but also this like amazing story of Leroy and, and, and the history of Jell-O and, and feminism. And like, there's so much amazing. I, if you've talked to me in the last week, I've mentioned this book to you and like pushed it on you, just FYI. Publishers Weekly says her memoir offers a fascinating feminist history of both a company and a family. And it's been listed as one of 2018's best summer books by People Magazine, Real Simple, Pop Sugar, and more. Let's give it up for Allie Robata. <laughs> to my lovely readers that I'm reading with. Um, thank you all for being here. I've never read from my book before in front of a crowd, so. Um, um, Queens. So the thing that I think about when I think about Queens is that I almost lived here. I was maybe gonna do my MFA here. And all I could think of was this movie that I was obsessed with as a child, which was um, It Could Happen to You with Nicolas Cage. It's a cop. He buys a lotto ticket. He leaves it as a tip for a waitress. And I loved it. And Queens in that movie looks beautiful, which it is. Um, so I just, I thought, yeah, I could do Queens, but I ended up not. 
now I'm here. Very happy about it. Um, so I'm just going to read at the beginning, read from the beginning. And um, it's part of the prologue, but not the entire. So here we go. She leaned forward, mouth opened for the wobbling pink jello I steered toward her. Here comes the jello train I sing-songed as if she were a child and I her mother, piloting a spoon into my baby's mouth. She kept her lips closed over a laugh, focused on swallowing and said nothing. Across the room, the TV flashed images of a main street somewhere in America, a dilapidated factory, Faded red brick, a smokestack, and a plaque. The Jell-O Company, 1900 through 1964. My mother gestured, mouth still full, pointing at the screen, suddenly frantic. Today we're revisiting Leroy, New York, the newscaster said. Birthplace of Jell-O, where in late 2011 and early 2012, a group of girls suffered mysterious Tourette's-like symptoms with no known cause. The camera cut to old footage of the girls, seated around a table, twitching, holding their own hands to stop themselves from flailing. Their eyes were rimmed in black liner, their hair was neatly swept into headbands, their lips were glossy and pink. Their mothers sat beside them, tensed against the camera's gaze, as if reined in to compensate for their daughters' unbounded bodies. We had followed the story closely, my mother and I. The mystery of Katie Krautwurst, a senior at Leroy High School, who in October 2011 awoke from a nap with her chin frozen. It jutted from her face at an unnatural angle. Her face was in spasm, her whole body twitching. Weeks later, her best friend Thera took a nap and woke up similarly altered. She too was ticking, throwing her arms, jerking her head, stuttering. The girls were both popular, both cheerleaders. Both had neatly conformed to the ideal of girlhood in their community, where the football team reigned supreme, and jello salads are still served on holidays and at local church potlucks. And the other girls, the girls who followed, also falling asleep, also awakening changed, those girls were cheerleaders too. But after a while, the numbers grew and the symptoms spread. Quiet girls like Lydia Parker were also afflicted. One girl wasn't a girl at all, but a 36-year-old woman, a nurse. About this mystery illness, the media said many things. They said, this is how it all started, and then offered theories of train wrecks and toxic spills, black mold in the classrooms, witchcraft in the woods. They said, there is no end in sight, and talked about the diagnosis, Conversion disorder, mass psychogenic illness, but always with a disbelieving tone, their faces floating on the television screen, disembodied heads in small side-by-side -side boxes. On other shows, the girls sat on sofas beside their mothers, answering questions and twitching more violently the more they spoke. I know my daughter, Thera's mother said. She's a normal, happy girl. There must be something physically wrong with her. The mothers insisted and the girls all agreed. A refrain emerged. They wanted the world to know they weren't crazy. Before this, Thera stuttered, arms flailing as she started to speak. I was fine. As she convulsed, the other girls began to as well, their movements picking up until the couch was rocked by the violence of their bodies. We weren't afraid of them, though the nation was. 
In the years approaching my mother's death, she and I were fixated on these girls. We talked about every unfolding aspect of their story, hours on the phone about their lives, about our lives, about how our histories were entwined, about how we were implicated, how this mystery illness was part of a system of symbolism, one older than us, older than Jell-O, consumerism, and America itself, one older even than witchcraft, one as old as men and women in words. This illness and its attended metaphors, my mother told me, were what she'd been trying to write about all these years. This, she said, was why she'd started her memoir in the first place. She pronounced her memoir with a soft R, memoir, and talked about hers constantly. In fact, the book, almost as old as I was, sometimes seemed to me like my mother's second child, and I resented her flourished memoir for all the years she spent writing it, all the years she spent away from me. But until I got older, I never thought of her book the way she did, as a spell she wrote to stop her family curse and save herself. Her writing would reclaim her life story, she believed, and the story of her mother before her. Her writing would become a counter-curse. We come from Jell-O. It is our birthright, bought by my mother's great-great-uncle by marriage for $450 in 1899 and sold 26 years later for $67 million. Jell-O money paid my mother's health insurance. It many times bought my ticket to her bedside in the cancer ward at Mount Sinai, where, in the winter of 2015, we watched the girls of Leroy, searching for glimpses of ourselves. Even so, my mother rarely ate the stuff. She saw Jell-O as an effigy of a curse she longed to escape. An apron, a kitchen, and long hours spent molding the perfect dessert had always seemed a cage to her, and she dreamed of freedom. Art and travel, music and self-expression, a life sung loudly and lived without fear. But sick as she was that winter, Jell-O was all she could keep down. Who would have thought, she whispered one night as I was feeding her. I pretended not to hear. It hurt too much to acknowledge every incremental loss she bore on the road to losing her life. I learned to be choosy with my empathy. She smacked her lips in mock satisfaction then and listed the food she'd eat if she could. Cold slices of pineapple, fried egg sandwiches, a burger so rare it dripped bloody juices. You'll get there, I said coaxing her to take one more bite. Afterward, she slept, her little mouth open, sighs arriving like characters in her dreams, expressions of comfort, maybe, maybe of pain. Her red curls, touched with gray where the dye had worn off, haloed her face. Her hands were open at her sides, waiting for my palm, which molded perfectly to the soft shell of hers. I sat, our fingers interlaced, looking out the window, keeping watch, waiting for her eyes to open, waiting to hear her voice. From her room at Mount Sinai, we could see the vented smoke from the Carver House's rooftops, colliding with the winter air, making a cloud we hovered above. We could see cabs on Madison Avenue, fluorescent against the gray ground, and dirty bodega awnings, leafless trees like bodies, thin and aching in the cold. I walked the barren city every afternoon, arriving at her bedside with all varieties of liquids and broths, black cherry jello because she had mumbled through half-sleep that it sounded better than the strawberries she received for lunch each day, 
peppermint candies for her to suck, never swallow. Wonton soup I carried in a paper sack and tucked under my coat and close to my body to keep the heat in. That was in January. By March, she'd be back in the hospital, unable to keep her food down, and Jella would remain the only thing she could stomach. By June, she would stop treatments and return home to a rented bed in the sunroom to the hospice care that helped her to a front row seat at my wedding in the garden, where I married the man I love into the Jello legacy. Two months after that, on the first day of September, she would leave me, passing away with a sunrise, unable to the end to talk about death, its cruelty, her fear, unable to fathom how it was that Jello was the last meal she ever ate. We have one more reader and then we're gonna have a panel, but this reader, yo guys, this reader is Amanda Stern. Yeah. Amanda Stern was born in New York City and raised in Greenwich Village. She's the author of Little Panic, published by Grand Central and available here, and also The Long Haul, published by Soft Skull. And she's also written 11 books for children written under pseudonyms. Mm. <laughs> Amazing. That would be a that would be fucking amazing. Okay. So, all right. You only hear these things in Queens, guys. Don't tell anyone else. What happens in this room stays here. Her personal essays have been widely anthologized, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, The Believer. Spinning Jenny, St. Anne's Review, and many others. In 2003, you may have heard of this, pretty amazing, she founded the Happy Ending Music and Reading Series. Anyone? Anyone? Yes. Yes! A long-running and beloved event that became an essential part of the New York literary landscape. She lives in Brooklyn with her dog, Busy. Let me just say a quick thing. Happy Ending, I just, I love that series so much. And I went to... Uh, it was in more than one venue I went to that series. And the last one I went to was at Symphony Space. And because of Amanda Stern, I got labor advice from Ani DeFranco. Because she was a guest at that series and I got to fucking talk to her and I will always love you, Amanda. Always. That's right. And now my kid will be two in two days. Like Ani, because of you, Amanda. Yeah, I, I because of you. Little Panic is super dope. It's amazing. This is like this like go, goes back in time in New York City, which is always uh, something that I love to read about because um, I've only been here twenty years, but I have this nostalgia for a time before I ever lived here, which I think a lot of people do. Which is it's kind of I don't know why do people do that. I'll ask you in the panel. Okay. <laughs> But Little Panic's amazing. Little Panic is a Barnes & Noble Discover pick for summer 2018 and an O Magazine top book of the summer. <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that, but that was totally over it. That was amazing. All right. Yeah. Kirkus Refuse calls Little Panic a riveting story and Stern a skilled stylist. Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, which is very good. <laughs> FYI and says that it's honest and deeply felt, Stern's story delivers a raw window into the terrifying world of panic disorders. 
Let's give it up for Amanda Stern. Thank you very much, Catherine. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming out to Queens and um, to Allie and Chelsea, who I'm so excited to be reading with and talking to after this. Um, I just get the Queens thing out of the way. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, so I was born in an era, era in Manhattan when there was a law that you weren't, if you were born in Manhattan, you weren't allowed to go to Queens. So um, I grew up under a very um, strict regime that wouldn't allow me to visit other boroughs. Um, but when I, I did finally make it out here against, you know, I had to wear a disguise and uh, identify as someone taller, um, I, um, I actually came to this bar and sat outside. This was about, I don't know, 10 years ago. When did this bar open? So when I was born, uh, the year I was born, I actually went to the, came to this bar 100 years ago. And I sat outside, and I thought, oh, this is, I said, this is such a great bar. I definitely, I have to come back here. It's so amazing. I'm going to hang out here all the time. And um, this is when I came back. Um, all right, so um, I don't know where my spot is. I'm going to read you, um, I'm going to read you a story um, about panic. Um, so, uh, uh, I, this book is about growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder in, um, Aton Pate's era Greenwich Village. Uh, he's a little boy who went missing in the seventies. Um, and I am, uh, the part I'm going to read you, I am about seven. So there you go. Countdowns are how my body tells time. Everyone else lives in a clock and, cal and calendar world, but my clocks and calendars are countdowns that start light and safe like ocean bubbles and end dark and dangerous like animal extinction. Countdowns come in stages that change color and sensation as they move from deep to shallow. They tell me in advance when I'm going uptown to visit my father, when my mother is going out to dinner with Jimmy, to a movie or on a two-week vacation and leaving us with a babysitter. If my mom and Jimmy go away while I'm uptown at my father's, or we go away from New York with my dad, that's a double countdown, which is the worst possible countdown a person can have. Countdowns happen for everything. Before a weekend with my dad, they look like this. Monday. When I wake up and remember that it's Monday, five entire days until I have to go to my dad's, the doom lifts and my relief grows. On Monday, Friday is far enough away. I'm in deep countdown, which is pale yellow and pulses in the distance. Deep countdown is tricky because it fools me into thinking I have enough time to be cured before the worst of the countdowns come. Maybe I've outgrown it since last time. This is what deep countdown wants me to think. During the day, the world is one glob of noise and action. The day's sun makes me feel like we're all connected, but daylight makes a promise that night doesn't keep. Nighttime is when we're all inside together. The darker it gets, the closer it is to bedtime, and bedtime is when I have to leave my mom by herself in the world. Dinner moves me one space ahead, cleanup is two, bath is three, and on it goes until it's time for sleep where I may never wake up. Tuesday. I wake up and feel relieved that I didn't die. Another minute to feel the world, which tells me I'm still in deep countdown. The pulse is there, but now the dull tugging is a bit closer. 
Unlike yesterday, if someone today says the word Friday or weekend, if I hear a number that matches the date I'm leaving, or I smell something like grilled cheese, which I eat only at my dad's, I feel a wave of middle countdown. I try to steer clear of all the things that set off middle countdown, but it's hard because the radio likes to announce what's coming up on Friday or the weekend. The world is always freeze tagging me. Wednesday. I wake up into middle countdown, which doesn't have color. Middle countdown is a vibration. Once I'm in middle countdown, I feel mad at myself that I didn't appreciate the safe feelings of Monday and Tuesday enough, that I didn't prepare myself. Middle countdown doesn't wash over me from behind. I walk right into it. It's a tunnel I enter. Sometimes the tunnel lasts only a flight of stairs. Other times the tunnel is the length of recess or the entire day crawling towards shallow countdown, which is the most dangerous. After school, everyone is already talking about Friday like they can't wait. That's when the sky lowers. A heavy day cups us close, catching the future, dragging it closer. Thursday. When I wake up in a shallow countdown, my limbs feel heavy and hard to lift. I can smell last night on my pillow, but I'm not in last night anymore. Shallow countdown can't be ignored. You don't accidentally walk into it or get zapped by its sudden flash. Shallow countdown paints over the stars and city lights. Shallow countdown is, a feeling, that, is feeling the things you're not supposed to feel, like the settings that hold your teeth in place. Shallow countdown is forgetting the names for familiar things like bed, dog, and window. Shallow countdown is knowing you're about to die. Every bite of school lunch is flavored with it. A new word, the last song in the school play, the smell of cooked mozzarella on after-school pizza, the squeaking effort of sneakers on a gym floor, my mother's closed eyes when she laughs, my siblings huddled whispers, the sun warming the cobbles on Worcester Street, the sound of skin sticking to a summer banister, the air on my face as I run down the street. The flavor won't come out. When the sun starts to set, my dread grows. Night pulls people apart. The shorter days mean shallow countdown starts sooner, and the darkening sky is like the subway doors. Even if you stick your hand in the way, they still close. Friday, the worst day of the week. I wake up and know what today is about. My skin feels tight around my bones. Balloon air takes up all the room inside me, making it hard to swallow, skimming just the top of each breath. There's no gap between times of fear. Fear is all there is. I feel the cracks and shadow places between the bones of the world, which is stripped of rules I can depend on. I feel things I know I shouldn't, like the spinning of the earth. On those Fridays before my dad arrives, I cry, cling to my mother, press myself into the banister. I hide in my closet, but never for long because it's too far away from my mother. My temples tense with sharp headaches. My stomach hardens into a stale fisted chestnut. I want to scream and throw tantrums, but I stay very still afraid of any sudden movement. How come no one except me understands that my heart must be near my mom's heart in order for us both to survive? When I'm gone, my mom might forget I exist, wander across the world and never send her new address. It's when I'm gone that she might cross on red, get hit by a car and die, lean too far out a window and crush her brains on the sidewalk, get mauled by a dog, tetanus by a rusty nail, or stabbed by an escaped mental patient from Bellevue. She might accidentally burn down the house or open the door to a killer who just robbed a bank. Anything can happen when I'm not there. And then, countdowns change into the actual events. Weekends, I almost never make it through. 
I press myself into Kara in the cab ride uptown, and she puts her arm around me. Out the window, patches of color fall behind and tumble downtown. Things turn gray at 18th and Park Avenue South, and the buildings change from homes into businesses. To distract myself, I try counting the passing buildings, but my eyes are too slow. By the time I feel caught up, we're already at the Pan Am building, and it's too late. We're inside the tunnel and slowing down for the turn, so slow that there's nowhere I can look to avoid the graffiti. Karen Silkwood was murdered. That sign is my enemy. If my mom is murdered, will my dad know how to care for me? Or will he make fun of me all the time, like always? Last summer, we lived uptown at Jimmy's house, and the son of Sam killed people, and the city had a blackout. What if the son of Sam comes back? What if an uptown waitress puts acid in my milk and I die like Karen Silkwood? The world moves too fast, and I'm too slow dodging out of the way. I keep getting crushed by life's revolving doors. No one tries to save me because it's all invisible to them. No one else sees how hard the world keeps pressing against me. Well, maybe Kara, but she's only 11. I hold Kara's hand and she rubs her thumb back and forth across my skin, which means she loves me. Two Fridays ago on a dad weekend, Kara's friend Marcy Klein was kidnapped. Everyone tried to keep it from me because they knew I'd be scared, but I heard about it anyway. My mom talked about it on the phone and teachers whispered about it at school and my friends told me what happened. What happened was Marcy was on the bus going to school when her babysitter stopped the bus and said there was an emergency and Marcy had to come with her. The emergency was that Marcy's mom was in the hospital, so of course Marcy went with her, but the babysitter lied. Her mom wasn't sick. Instead, Marcy's babysitter took her to a place of ransom and hid her until her dad dropped off a big bag of money inside the Pan Am building where Karen Silkwood was murdered. That's it. I just give it up for Amanda Stern. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob, and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.